Joshua, uh, chapter 5, 1 to 12. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, hear that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the son of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the son of Israel at Gibeah Harad. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came, who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of the Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, and to all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished, because they not obeyed the voice of the Lord. The Lord sought with them that they he would not let him see the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had because they not being circumcised on the way. When circumcision was of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so they, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were in Kaba Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, the living cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Great. Thank you, Harrison, and thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. It seems like our lives are filled with countless signs everywhere we look. Uh, some signs are designed to manipulate us into thinking that that super bacon deluxe extra crazy sauce burger is going to make us feel good. Uh, some signs are designed to make us feel like we're going to go from lame to cool by the end of a like, can of beer, uh, which isn't true, by the way, especially if you're drinking some of that hipster IPA garbage. Right? You, go from, <laughs> you go from lame to even more lame by the end of that one. Um, some signs help us find out where we need to be or where we need to go. Uh, I remember a few times um, I thought I would literally, I was literally about to meet Jesus in Brussels because driving in Brussels is insane. Like, like the road signs are not clear. The lines on the road are not clear. The rules are different, especially when I was riding my bike because um, driving in Brussels felt like, it felt like you were driving in a really insanely packed, really busy parking lot on like Black Friday, right? It's like, it's like there's some rules, but it felt like largely just a free-for-all. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Um, in a lot of places in Western Europe, there aren't enough signs on the road. Like you drive into the Netherlands and they don't have any speed limit signs anywhere, but you know what they have everywhere is speeding cameras. So they're not gonna tell you how fast you can go, but they will mail you five tickets in the mail because you were going over the speed limit. Um, I have some experience with this. And so um, the point is, we need signs in our lives to understand where we are and where we need to go. 
Uh, But we need more than just like road signs and advertisements. We need spiritual signs to help us navigate the world that we're living in. And thankfully, as we're going to see, God gives us those signs. Uh, This is true for us today. We need these reminders. We need these pointers. And it was also true for God's people thousands of years ago. In fact, this is what Joshua 5 is all about. After God redeemed Israel from Egypt, they should have ideally sprinted over to the promised land because God had guaranteed it to them, right? They should have walked right out of Egypt and hightailed it over to the promised land, but they didn't, right? If ever someone was going to lay claim to the promises of God and act with complete certainty and faith upon those promises, you would think it would be after they witnessed God mop the floor with the most powerful nation in the world and then lead them out with a literal pillar of fire through the Red Sea. But they didn't. They doubted God's promises. They rebelled. If there's anything the nation of Israel was really, really good at, like their strongest thing that that, that they did better than anything else, it was being the absolute worst, right? Being the absolute worst, which if we're honest, we're not much different many of the times. They were disobedient and they distrusted God. So because of this, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years after the entirety of that rebellious generation died off. God was going to give them the promised land, but he was going to give the promised land to their descendants, to the next generation after them. So finally, after four decades, they arrive in Moab on the banks of the Jordan River. They were so close to the promised land, they could literally see it. Now was their chance to do what their grandparents and parents had failed to do. They were about to lay siege to the land, but before they could, they had to cross the raging Jordan River while it was in flood. So last week, we saw how Joshua instructed the priests to step into the water with the Ark of the Covenant, and when they did this, God caused the Jordan to part so that two million Israelites could walk through. I believe this was God calling them back to, hey, remember what I did 40 years ago? You're still going to go. You're still going to conquer by my power. I'm going to cause you to remember when I parted the Red Sea, I'm gonna cross the, part of the Jordan for you too so that there's a reminder that you're going to take this land, but you're gonna do it because I was with you, because I led you there, lest you go in and think that you conquered it by your own strength and that you're the great one. I gave this land to you. I led you there, I'm giving it to you. Now, after hearing about all that God had done for the nation of Israel, about how, about how he brought plagues upon the land of Egypt, how he destroyed the house of Pharaoh, how he parted the Red Sea, how he parted the Jordan. The kings of the pagan peoples on the land knew that their days were numbered. They knew that they were toast and they knew that, 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 that God was with these people, that, he was, that they were coming. And so they knew their days were numbered. And so the scripture tells us that they kind of lost their spirit. They lost their will to fight. They lost their will to even resist. So strategically, this was the best time to hit the gas pedal and go right in and take the land. The Israelites were full of confidence and the Canaanites were like shaken in their sandals. But before they entered the land and proceeded to like evict the squatters, God told them to wait. He said, pause, stop. See, God wanted to do something in the Israelites before he did something through them. This is where we are in chapter five. God calls, causes the eager people, he calls them to hang tight, stop where you are, 
and remember, renew and remember the covenant that God had made with their forefather, Abraham. God wanted them to remember that they were not just a conquering army. They were God's people going into the land that God promised, laying hold of God's promise and taking the land for the glory of God. And the way God reminded them of who they were was through two signs, circumcision and Passover. So first, I want us to see here in Joshua chapter five that the people of God renewed the covenant that God had made with their forefather, Abraham. They renewed the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Look again at verses two and three. It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeth Haraloth. So before Israel went into battle, God wanted to renew the covenant with them by restoring something that had been neglected in the wilderness. And that was the practice of circumcision, which by the way, this is a good place for us to pause and just appreciate the fact that RC not only assigned me to preach on spring forward Sunday, but also on circumcision Sunday, (laughs) right? Well played boss. So circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham when he promised that he would make Abraham the father of of many peoples, of many nations. So every male in Abraham's household was to be circumcised as a sign for the people to remember the promise that God gave to Abraham. Circumcision, therefore, was a sign of God's grace Abraham, as well as the nation of Israel, they didn't do anything to earn God's favor. Abraham certainly didn't. Abraham was a Mesopotamian idol worshiper who'd never heard the name of Yahweh and was worshiping his father's idols. He wasn't knocking out of the park spiritually. Yet God called Abraham and Abraham responded in faith. And the scripture tells us, therefore, that he was justified by his faith. The the covenant that God made with him was a covenant all by grace. God wasn't looking for Abraham to have done or been anything before he made his covenant with him. He wasn't saying, Abraham, I'll make my covenant with you, but first you gotta do this, 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 this. You gotta be this type of person and then I'll make my covenant with you. God said, no, I'll make my covenant with you and therefore you are to be this type of person because I've already made my covenant with you. It was an unconditional covenant. Same is true for Israel. God did not love Israel because they were large and powerful. They were small compared to other nations. They were weak. They were frustrating. They were annoying. Yet God set his grace upon them and lavished them with endless patience and love. He gave his covenant to them. See, friends, God does not change in the way that he saves. God has always only ever saved by grace through faith. He sets his grace on people, not because of what they do. And people respond in faith and through faith, they are justified, not by their works. God doesn't save differently in the New Testament than the Old Testament. It's only ever been by grace through faith. And so the sign that he gave them to remind them of this was circumcision. Now, God could have chosen many things to remind the people of the covenant. Why circumcision? Like, think about the sign he gave Noah for the covenant he made with Noah was a rainbow. 
a nice, beautiful rainbow. You get to go outside, look at it. Sometimes there's two of them. And it's very beautiful. Why circumcision? Well, I'm sure there are many reasons, but I have to believe that one of the main reasons has to do with how the nation of Israel came to be. Remember, God told Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many nations. The only problem with this was that Abraham and his wife were like 100 years old. The days of childbearing, the days of procreation had gone. This wasn't probably wasn't in the cards for them. This is not something that they thought about ever doing again. Or so they thought. God miraculously opened the womb of a postmenopausal woman and she gave birth to Isaac, the son of promise. So you better be careful, Grandma. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> Circumcision meant that every time a husband and wife were intimate, there was a visible reminder of God's promise. The promise that God would grow the children of Abraham into a mighty nation. And then the sons that came as a result of those relations were circumcised as a reminder that God's promise was to be passed to the next generation. Circumcision was a sign associated with procreation and birth so that people would remember that their entire nation's existence was by the grace of God, that they were who they were and they would go as they went all by the grace of God. However, we see in Joshua chapter five that the people who came out of Egypt, they were circumcised, but for whatever reason, they did not pass the sign on to their children while they were in the wilderness. Now, I'm not sure we know exactly why, but knowing what we know about the rebellious generation, it wouldn't surprise me if they just neglected it. It wasn't important to them. It wasn't something that they, that they took great Pains to say, we're going to make sure that we do this. They neglected to pass the sign on to their children in the wilderness. So the young men, or really men under 40, did not bear the sign, the mark of God's covenant with the children of Abraham. So before they went into battle, God wanted to restore this neglected sign in order to make it clear that when you go into the land and whenever you have victory over the people, this is not dependent upon your power, your abilities, or your resources. Your victory is dependent, it is contingent upon the faithfulness of God to the covenant that he made with you. The land will be yours because God promised it to you, not because you're strong and great. So he wanted them to stop to remember this. So God told Joshua, make some flint knives and circumcise all the males who have not yet received the signs. Now, again, think about this. There probably were some children, infants in this group but this was largely young and middle-aged men that he was talking about here. It's not like they were, again, not like they were little infants. They weren't going to remember. They were just going to be like healed up and, you know, this is, this is, you can imagine there was a sense of unease around the camp when Joshua said, all right, here's the plan. <laughs> and also Joshua was going to use a flint knife <laughs> to do it. This was not going to be the most technical and proficient surgery in the world. It's safe to say the boys were going to be out of commission for a few days. And they may have thought, wait, wait, the Canaanites are literally cringing before us. They have no spirit in them. They're, they're terrified. 
we should be running in there and kicking butt and taking names. We should be going and laying hold to this promise that God made to us. You want us to stop, inflict serious injury upon ourselves, wait several days to heal, and then go? And the Canaanite peoples are going to be like, wait, they did what? But unlike their rebellious grandparents and parents, this generation did not lean away from what God commanded. They leaned into what God commanded. They obeyed. This is how they were going to win, by obeying God and staying faithful to his covenant. They were going to take the land by God's power, not their own. And that's exactly what God wanted them to remember before their conquest. Now, there would have been hundreds of thousands of men and boys who went under the flint knife for their special surgery. I don't want to be crude, but I want to talk about what the scripture says. What the scripture says. Uh, there would have been a lot of skin laying around, if we can say it like that. So you gotta, you got to hope they had several knives that they were using. I'm not trying to be gross, but in verse 3, when we read that this took place at Gibeath Haraloth, that translates to the hill of foreskins. And I'm sure it was a hill indeed. After their procedure was complete, God told Joshua, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from my people. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The reproach of Egypt here refers to the sin of the previous generation. So the sin, rebellion, the judgment that was on the previous generation, God's saying, I've rolled that away. God is saying that he has taken away the judgment that had been on Israel that had kept them out of, the, out of the promised land. Now you may go into the promised land and lay claim to the promise I made to you. My judgment is no longer on your nation. God renewed the covenant with the people. The people obeyed. Judgment was lifted. And now the land was ripe for the taking. So they renewed the covenant that they made with Yahweh. So this leads us to the second thing that they did. God gave them another yearly sign in order to remember the covenant year by year. So every time a boy was born, he was circumcised. That was a reminder of the covenant. But for everyone, there was an annual reminder, an annual celebration that reminded them of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And that was the Passover. So while the boys were still like popping pain pills and recovering from their, their procedure, uh, the time came to celebrate the Passover. Now, this was a very significant moment in the life of Israel. This was the first Passover that was celebrated in the promised land. It's the first Passover that was celebrated in the promised land. So this celebration was a sign that God established to help the people remember how God had miraculously redeemed them from the land of Egypt. You remember, God demanded that Pharaoh would let his people go so that they could worship and serve him in the wilderness. As it turns out, Pharaoh had a pretty strict policy against letting his whole free labor force leave. And so he was reluctant to obey God and he resisted God. He did not obey. Well, disobeying God tends to not work out well for anyone because he's God. And so God brought terrible plagues upon the land of Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart. So God brought terrible plagues upon the land so Pharaoh would see that he'd better obey God. But even after nine terrible plagues that rocked Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was still hard. He would not let the people go. Now, this was all according to plan. I want to be clear about this. God wasn't like, 
running through a list of things to try to see if he could change Pharaoh's mind. He wasn't like, all right, send in the frogs. Did that work? All right, let's do darkness. Let's try the fiery hail. That's not how this went. This is all according to the plan of God. Both in the book of Exodus as well as in Romans chapter 9, it is said, God told Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that my power might be displayed through you. So the plan of God was that God would establish Pharaoh, that Pharaoh would be born and brought to the, to the place of highest power, the most prominent, powerful man of the most prominent, powerful nation in the world. God would put him in this position so that he could obliterate Pharaoh and show the world, I'm the powerful one. I'm the strongest. The strongest man in the strongest nation has nothing. I'm not beholden to him. Pharaoh may think he has power over everyone else, but he does not have power over Yahweh. For this purpose, I've raised you up, that my power might be demonstrated through you, is what God told Pharaoh. So God dealt the death blow to Egypt in the 10th plague by sending the angel of death to come and take the firstborn of all the land, the firstborn animals, the firstborn children, all the firstborn of the land were killed. But in order to save the nation of Israel from this judgment, God gave them a sign to perform in faith. Now remember this, we're gonna come back to it in just a few minutes. They were to take a year-old spotless lamb and place its blood on the doorposts of their homes. That way, God's judgment would pass over the homes marked by the blood. Israel was to celebrate this annually as a sign to help them remember how God had redeemed them and triumphed over their great enemy. But this sign was not just about remembering how God brought them out of Egypt. It was also about remembering God's promise to lead them to a new land, a better land, a land of abundance. God did not just free Israel from slavery and then say, all right, you're free, figure it out, Godspeed to you. He brought them out of slavery to lead them to a better home, a better land, a better life. Passover was not just about what God saved Israel from. It was about what God saved Israel for, what he saved them to do. See, going to the promised land was like the first step in Israel doing what they were supposed to do. Israel was supposed to fill the world with knowledge of Yahweh's glory. We know the prophets longed for this. Habakkuk 2.14 says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh's glory. That's what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to show the world what God is like so that knowledge of God's glory would spread all around the world. And taking the promised land was like the first step of that process. Well, obviously we know that Israel didn't do a very good job of that. They failed at that. But that's what it was for. God brought them into this land, not only to redeem them, but so that they could be a light to the Gentiles to show them who Yahweh was. So, while the generation was walking through the wilderness for 40 years, even in their rebellion, remember, God showed grace to them by giving them manna every day to eat. They got to take up a little bit extra on Friday so they could rest on the Sabbath. He gave them manna every day to eat. But here, after the first Passover celebration, Joshua 5 says that the manna stopped. You no longer need this. That's desert food. That's wilderness food. Now you're in the promised land. Now you're going to eat of the produce of the land that God's promised you. So now they're here. They renewed their covenant. They celebrated Passover. They remembered who they were, who God was, and what God redeemed them to do, what God redeemed them to be. So I'm gonna shift gears now 
And I wanna think about some of the key lessons that we can learn from this chapter. Old Testament narrative is really fun. It's really, it's really cool. Even the New Testament narrative is, is fun, cool to talk about. It's interesting to think about all the things, kind of put some things in context. But what we have to do is say, okay, how then should I live in light of this? What does this mean for my life? And so I wanna take out a couple of lessons that we can like, extract from this passage. And I wanna present them to you in the form of a couple questions that I wanna ask you. And I want you to ponder deep in your heart. The first question is this. Are you saved? Are you saved? Look again at verse verse five. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. The generation who came out of Egypt was circumcised, but they neglected to circumcise their own children. They had the mark of God's covenants, but they did not pass that mark down to their children. They had the mark of the covenant. They didn't care about living out the covenants. Remember, God does not look for us to, he wasn't looking for them to do a certain thing in order to make his covenant. But once he made his covenant with them, he expected them to live and be a certain way. They didn't care about that. They didn't care about the covenant that God made with them. So I want you to think about your own life. Are you a true believer in the gospel? The Bible says that we will be known by our fruits. The book of James tells us that true believers are not just, are not just those who hear the word, but those who do the word. During first hour, as I was preaching, I was thinking about this when I was talking about Passover. And I thought, as I was talking, I thought, what was it that caused the angel to pass over the homes? Was it the marking of the blood on the doorpost? Or was it the faith of the Israelites inside? Which one? I'm not, I want you to think. I don't want to shout an answer. Just think to yourself. Which one was it? I think it was both. I think it was both. Let me be very clear. We are not saved by our works. Here at LifePoint, we're going to stress that point very clearly. Your works contribute Nothing to your justification is only by faith, but works in faith in scripture are inseparable because in scripture, true faith produces works. That's why James says, I believe in chapter two, you're not saved by faith alone. Now that's not meant to challenge our doctrine of salvation by faith alone, but it is meant to say in the words of Martin Luther, you are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith produces a way of living, it produces works. So there wouldn't have been an Israelite who would have said, I have faith that God will save us, but I'm not gonna put any blood on the doorpost. I believe God would have taken the firstborn child of that family. The reason being, if you're not acting out on your faith, it's not genuine faith. If you have faith in God's promise, you're going to do what God says. So think about your life. Is obedience to God something that's important to you? Is obeying God's word, living the type of life that God has called you to live, something that matters to you? Or is like Christianity, Christianity just like your, your family hobby on Sundays? You don't want your kids to grow up and do drugs, and so they need to come to church, so you bring your family to church. Is that what this is? Are you, are you, are you really spiritual around us? And then if you went to work and someone found out you went to church, you called, called yourself a Christian, they'd be shocked. They'd go, you? Really? Are you sure? 
I couldn't tell. Now, I'm not, I'm not calling for perfection, as we're going to see in a second. But think about your life. Do you have faith in Christ? And the way to know that I have faith in Christ is because this changes the way I want to live. This changes the way I think about him. Sure, I disobey him, but it pains me that I do because I want to honor him. I want to live the life he calls me to live. Are you saved? Because listen, you can come around here, you can do all the things, you can sing all the songs, you can get all the t-shirts, you can do all the stuff. You can come here every week and this could still be a game for you. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness played the religion game. They had their sign, but they didn't really care about passing along to their kids. They didn't really trust the Lord. They, they were rebellious against the Lord. They were just playing the game. Think about your own life. Is this a game that you're playing or is this something that has truly transformed your life? Transformed the way you live, think, speak. Second, are you baptized? Are you baptized? Now, why am I asking this question? Well, today, it doesn't matter if you circumcise your son or not. Like, it doesn't matter spiritually. It has no spiritual significance. God does not expect his people to circumcise their children. If someone wants to make a religious argument for it, it's not there. You don't have to do it anymore. We no longer bring eight-day-old kids to the pastor to be carved up, thankfully. I'd have to reevaluate my calling if that were the case. God no longer requires this for his people. After the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the covenant sign changed for the people of God. It changed from circumcision to baptism. It went from circumcision to baptism. Now, you may wonder, and it would be fair to wonder, if circumcision was to be applied to the children of the people, then why don't we baptize our children? Circumcision was for infants. Why don't we baptize our infants? As a matter of fact, Probably many of you were baptized as infants. I was baptized in a Presbyterian church when I was an infant. Most expressions of Christianity in the world baptize their infants. Like, of all the historic Protestant denominations, and when I say historic, I mean dating back centuries, Baptists are the only group that don't baptize our infants. The Lutherans, the, 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 the Catholics, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Catholics, the Orthodox, all these, they baptize their infants. Why don't we? Well, you can imagine there's been a lot of debate around this, a lot of debate about this, about how the sign is to be, how much it actually correlates with circumcision. So I'm not going to give you a whole treatise here on why we do believer's baptism, although I can certainly help you if you need to think through this. But the reason we don't is because circumcision was for infants. Baptism is for believers. Why? Israel was a physical people. They were a physical people. You were part of the nation of Israel by virtue of your birth. You had to be a child, a descendant of Abraham. That's how you were part of Israel. So the sign was given to you, the covenant sign was given to you by virtue of your being born. You were born into the covenant community. Because the covenant community is a family of people, a literal family that traced their lineage back to one man. So the covenant sign was given, a physical covenant sign was given to a physical people descended from a physical man. However, the church, true Israel, the true people of God, what Israel was foreshadowing is, is a spiritual people. We don't trace our lineage back to one man. 
And so you are a part of the covenant community of the people of God, the church, by virtue, not of your first birth, but of your second birth. So we do baptize infants as, as Baptists. We do baptize infants at life point. We baptize spiritual infants. We baptize people after their second birth because uh, membership in the family of God is now contingent upon your faith in Christ. And circum- uh, I'm sorry, baptism is given as a sign to someone for their entrance into the spiritual people of God after their second birth. So when we baptize, as we just did, we bring people up on stage in front of our local congregation and we proclaim that they have faith in Jesus. The pastors, the, the, the staff, we, we do our due diligence before we baptize someone to try to guarantee that their profession of faith is valid, that we believe that they're actually a Christian. And then we get up and we tell you, we believe this person's a Christian. They're part of the covenant community. We're baptizing them as a sign that they're part of this family. So we bring them before you, we baptize them, we celebrate they're part of the covenant community. You, the church, affirm this profession of faith and we baptize them into our family. So the New Testament does not have a category of a Christian who doesn't get baptized. Right? The, the, the New Testament does not have a category for this, for, for this Christian out there who says, no, baptism's not for me. Just like how there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, a, a situation for the Israelite to say, yeah, I have faith in God, but I'm not gonna put the blood on my doorpost. This is a sign that God has given. So we don't get to come up with reasons about why we don't want to. Well, I don't really like it in front of people. Well, that's not a reason to disobey the Lord. I don't wanna get all wet. Give me a break. Just like the Israelites were walking in disobedience because they did not give the covenant sign to their children, so we walk in disobedience as pastors if we don't administer the covenant sign to believers. And you walk in disobedience if you refuse to take the covenant sign upon yourself. So if you're a Christian who's not been baptized, you can register for that today by going to lifept.org slash baptism. Uh, you can mark it on the blue card. Come, come talk to us after service. We want to get you. I think the next time we do baptism is going to be Easter, right? And so you want to, be, what a great time to be baptized. Easter Sunday, it'd be awesome. It'd be a great celebration. So if you've not been baptized and you feel the Lord convicting you for that, fill out a blue card, come talk to us, register, and we'll get you on the schedule. Finally, are you being sanctified? Are you being sanctified? God did not just save you so that he could spare you from hell. That's certainly part of it. I believe wholeheartedly that God greatly delights in sparing his people from his wrath. But that's not the only reason God saved you. God saved you and marked you as one of his. He set you aside for his glory so that you could show the world what God is like in the way that you live, so that you could show the world what Jesus is like in the way that you emulate him. The Bible does tell us that God saved us in order to... uh, conform us to the image of his son. Of course, this doesn't mean, like we said a few minutes ago, that we're gonna be perfect. Absolutely does not mean we're gonna be perfect, but it does mean that we're going to be different. It means that we should strive to make a difference by living and looking like Christ. We have been saved in order to be a people holy unto the Lord, a people set apart from the world, a people set aside for his glory, Remember earlier I said that Israel, what Israel was supposed to do was fill the world with knowledge of Yahweh's glory? They failed. Now, true Israel has the same task. You, the true people of God, believers in Jesus Christ, our job is not to huddle up here in Smyrna, here at Stewart's Creek. 
Our job is to fill the world with more God worshipers, to fill our community with more God worshipers, to show the world this is what God is like. This is what life was meant to look like. This is how you were designed to live. We were designed to be conformed to the image of his son. Sin has marred us and ruined us in this regard, yet Christ can redeem and restore so that we can live the life God designed us to live. Are you being sanctified? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Now, there's a strange thing that happens. Well, it's almost to be expected, but it sometimes feels unpleasant. The more like Christ you become, the more hyper-aware of your sin you become. So the more like Christ you're becoming, the more sanctified you get, the more sinful you feel, which is why it's so important. We're pushing you to things like discipleship groups. It's so good to have people around you who can say, look, I know you're, you're kind of getting down on yourself, man, but look, I've seen the way God's worked in your life over the past year. It's why it's important to have godly conversations with our spouse. Sometimes you need your wife or your husband to look at you and go, listen, I'm telling you, you don't get as angry as you used to get. You're not as lazy as you used to be. I've, I've seen you step up and lead our family. I've, I've seen God work in you. Sometimes we need other people to say, yeah, you're being sanctified. I can see God working through you. At the end of Paul's life, Paul referred to himself in the last, in the last epistle Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. At Paul's most sanctified, he gives himself the harshest title, the chief of sinners. The more like Christ you become, the more aware of your sin you become. That's why you need people around you who can look at you and encourage you. We won't be perfect, but we will be different. God saved you so you could show the world what he's like in the way that you live. Now, one last thing. The generation that came out of Egypt did not value passing down the covenant sign to their children. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this, mom and dads. The people who came out of Egypt did not care to pass down the covenant sign to their children. They did not care about the holiness and set-apartedness of their children. Mom and dad... Do we care about that? Do we care about the holiness, the godliness of our children? Do we care about passing down the promises of God to our children? Are we serious about this? Or do we do what the world does? Do we allow our children to waste away for hours and hours of the day being indoctrinated by idiots on TikTok or lurking around in the shadows of Snapchat? Are we allowing the world to have a louder voice in the lives of our children than the word of God? Are we tacitly teaching them that travel ball, grades, or anything else is more important than devotion to Christ and devotion to Christ's people and the local church? Are we allowing our children to decide whether or not they're going to come and participate in the life of the church? When I was a student pastor, I heard this all the time. I don't want to force my kid to come to church. I don't want to make them. Make them. They're children. They don't know anything about what's good for them. My kids would eat hamburgers and cinnamon rolls for every meal if I let them. 
They are the least qualified people in the whole world to be making decisions about their well-being. Of course we make them. Listen, God did not give us children so that we could just look after them until they're adults. That's not what parenting is. You're not a babysitter. You're a discipler. You're a disciple maker. Our job as moms and dads is to teach our children, this is how you ought to live. This is how you live if you want to flourish. You may not like it. You don't like broccoli. We're gonna make you eat broccoli. And, any, and any, anyone who's still out there saying, well, I don't know, I really feel bad. Do you make your kid go to school when your kid doesn't wanna go to school? Yes. And I guarantee it's not because a truancy officer is gonna to come to your house and punish you. You want your kid to be educated, right? If your kid comes to you and says, I really don't wanna to go to, ba- to baseball practice today. What do you say? No, son, we honor our commitments in this family. Right? We make our kids do all kinds of things. Nothing you make your children do, probably outside of surviving, things necessary to their survival, is as important as having them come and participate in the body of Christ because we are to show them this is how we live. This is how Christians live. In this house, we serve Yahweh. We serve the Lord. We are in covenant with him. And our laziness, our apathy, our, our wanting to sleep in or whatever else, our wanting to just scroll for an hour instead of sitting and listening to God's word for an hour does not trump the covenant that God made with us. And we have to teach our children that, mom and dad. We have to teach them, hey, functioning adults who live happy lives and love the Lord don't sit around for 10 hours of the day looking at their phone on social media. And don't think for one minute I'm exaggerating when I say 10 hours. Please check your kids' screen times. Healthy adults who love God and flourish aren't sitting around getting worldly propaganda pumped into them all day. Do you know what your kids are looking at on their phones? Do you know what your kids are looking at at 1 a.m. in their room, on their bed? We have to be serious about this because friends, it takes one generation. It takes one generation for this thing to be lost, right? It just takes us not passing down the faith to one generation. How did Western Europe, the heart of Christianity in the world for centuries, get filled with people who cared nothing about Jesus? As a matter of fact, they don't just care, not care about Jesus. They don't even know who Jesus is. How did that happen? We stopped passing down the message. That's how it happened. We let worldly ideologies, demonic worldviews, infuse the lives of our children, and now they're gone. Don't think that it can't happen here. We have to pass the promise down to our children. We have to pass the covenant down to our children. We have to show our children This is how we live as the people of God. Now, when you're an adult, you can go do whatever you want. But in this home, we serve the Lord. We fear the Lord. This is what we do. Moms and dads, this is a tremendously important and tremendously high calling. And you can do it by God's grace. You can do it by God's grace. You're gonna screw up, but you can do it by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. And here at LifePoint, we don't don't just wanna come up here in the pulpit and kick the stand over and tell you, disciple your kids! We want to help you do it. And so not only through our regular ministry programming do we want to help you do that, 
the, the, the materials that we give, the resources we provide for you. We also wanna, wanna put on events and things like that that are, that are gonna help. I wanna talk about grace-based parenting for just a moment. This is coming up on March 19th at the Smyrna Camp. It's gonna be like a one-day conference where we talk about uh, parenting. And so listen, we're gonna give you tools and resources to help you. This isn't gonna answer every question, but what we hope it will do is give you resources and kind of maybe kickstart or fortify the discipleship in your homes. Mom and dad, you are disciples in your home. Dad, you specifically, you are not Christ, but you are as Christ to your family. The reason God gave Israel the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is because if they could not obey their parents, how would they ever learn to obey the Lord? How would they ever learn to obey the Lord? The reason that we as moms and dads command the respect of our children, teach them submission, teach them obedience, is because we want them to know that obedience to God's commands will lead to flourishing for them. Disobedience to God's commands leads to pain for them. And the clearest way you can teach your elementary school, your preschooler, your your middle schooler, even your high schooler that lesson is by showing them in this house, we will obey the limits that mom and dad have established. And when you obey those limits, you will flourish. You will enjoy your life. And you will feel pain at the consequences when you don't. Because isn't that true for us, mom and dad? When it comes to God's commands, we must instill these things so that our children may grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's easy to make the mistake the wilderness generation made, to neglect to teach their children, to neglect to pass on the promise to them but we must do it. We must take our God-given call seriously. So I hope you register for this. I hope you talk about the Bible with your kids. I hope that you're investing in your own spiritual life so you can be strong to lead your family. So as we think about these things, as we think about who God is, what he's done for us and what he's called us to do, we need to practice remembering his covenant. So just like baptism corresponds with circumcision, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper today. And this corresponds to pass over. And so I'm gonna invite the band out. You should have got some, some elements when you came in for the Lord's Supper. Um, if you don't have any, maybe raise your hand and someone from the back will jump up and help, help out. So you got some people here. Okay, Sam's gonna come around. Just raise your hand high so we can get it to you. Well, by the way, if, you're a, um, yeah, if, you're, if there's a Christian in the room who does not have elements, yeah, please raise your hand. Right now is going to be a, a time of reflection. The band's gonna sing a song over us. And while they sing, I would encourage you to, to pray, reflect. Maybe there's a certain sin in your life, maybe a couple sins in your life that you need to bring to the Lord, things you haven't confessed, things you haven't sought forgiveness over and, and restoration from. This would be a great time for you to do that. Bring those things before the Lord. Focus your heart on him and prepare before we take this sign together. We're gonna sing the song, then I'm gonna come out and we're gonna take the elements together. So wait for me to come back out, please. Um, And then two, I must say, um, at LifePoint Church, we are very concerned about obeying everything God has told us to do. We love God, so we're gonna obey him when he tells us to do something. And one of the things that God has commanded of his people is that the Lord's Supper, this sign, is only for believers only for people who are part of the covenant community who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're here. I tr- I'm so thankful that you're here, but I'm going to implore you 
do not partake in this with us for your sake and for the sake of our obedience and purity before the Lord in this church. This is a sign for believers. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'd love for you to come out and talk to us after service. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ. So the next time we take the Lord's Supper, you can join in with us. So with all that being said, maybe where you are, bow your heads, reflect, spend some time in prayer, and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together.